earliest days uh, and experience with Bruce Lundvall, uh, we had just launched Jazz's. Uh, we we're literally operating out of a one bedroom apartment. Uh, I had one phone. It was, you know, in the pre cell phone era. So it was a, a, for those of you who are old enough, it was a kitchen phone, a wall phone that was uh, linked to a, uh, a spiral cord. So you couldn't walk too far. Uh, and uh, I get a call one day and I pick it up from my kitchen phone and it's, it's Bruce Lundvall. And he tells me how much he really enjoys this new magazine we launched. And he's leaving Electra to go rejuvenate the Blue Note brand. And he would like to uh, see if we can work together and, and support each other. And of course, I was just enamored that he would even call me. And uh, we started a relationship there. He actually became, uh, back in the early days, uh, the first uh, major record company advertiser in Jazz Is. And then uh, at, at a NARM convention, actually before uh, what you were just alluding to, um, he had invited me to a scholarship dinner. He told me to meet him at the beach. And I met him at the beach. And we were sitting in the sand in bathing suits in Hollywood, Florida. And uh, he had introduced me to a, a gentleman who was starting this music television network, which we thought was kind of a dumb idea. Um, and that matriculated into let's go to this scholarship dinner. Of course, I wasn't a member of NARM. I was a poor student back then. He invited me to sit with him and we sat at a table with the heads of all the major jazz labels. And in the next table over was Quincy Jones and Barry Gordy and Vanity and um it was that night that I met Quincy Jones and that would never have happened if it wasn't for Bruce. And then at our, I think it maybe it was our 10th year anniversary. Um, I said, let's do something special, Bruce. He goes, Oh, I want to do something special for you. I just signed Richard Elliott to Manhattan label. Um, why don't we have Richard perform at your anniversary party? And I was like, this is incredible. And that's the way Bruce was all along. He was just an incredible supporter of all of us in the business, even though, again, he came from more traditional roots, he totally got contemporary music. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you have any good Bruce Lundvall stories? Yeah. Um, actually, it's interesting as I was, I heard you start the conversation or start your experience with you got a phone call from Bruce Lundvall, which is exactly the way I first was introduced to Bruce. Um, I was with a label, uh, a small label, uh, in Los Angeles. Well, small, but they actually uh, called Intima Records, but they were affiliated mm -hmm. with Enigma Records, which uh, was pretty big in uh, metal music. And like Poison was one of their, their mm -hmm. artists. And um, the VP, uh, senior VP at uh, Enigma wanted to start a jazz label. And um, uh, as, as it turned out, and it, I had a great experience with them, but as it turned out, uh, that label ended up breaking apart, Enigma, the parent company, mm -hmm. and was picked up by Capitol Records. And they went through the artist roster on, you know, on the the rock side on uh, and Poison uh, changed labels at that point. But um, I didn't even know what was happening when the label broke up that Bruce had actually gone in because he was part of Capitol and had his pick of artists. Um, and for some reason he picked me and I was at home. Actually, I was living in Florida at the time. Um, I was in your West coast. Yeah. I was in the Tampa area. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was interesting. I got a phone call and I <laughs> picked up the phone. I said, hello, Richard, my boy, Bruce Lundball. And you know, this incredible, just Bruce Lundball. Here. Yeah. I mean, that's totally him. Just this big yeah. presence. I mean, a big presence meeting him live, but, a, a, an imposing presence over the phone. And um, he said, uh, we, uh, as you know, Enigma has, uh, has broken up and uh, I, uh, I would like to know if you'd like to come and record for Manhattan records, which is going to be part of the blue note group. And of course I didn't even have to consider it. It was just sure. a dream come true for me. Uh, first of all, the fact that it was Bruce, um, you know, such a legendary guy, but he said, well, why don't we do this? Why don't you come up to New York and, uh, we can have lunch and we can talk a little bit and, and sort of plan out the future. And uh, I went up to New York, uh, met Bruce. And uh, the first thing I learned about Bruce, uh, I mean, I'm a huge 
food fanatic. I'm a foodie beyond <laughs> foodies. He was I, a foodie. He total foodie. And uh, where did he take you to Castellanos? We went. I, I believe it was. So, so <laughs> it, it was awesome to go into one of the best Italian restaurants in New York. Yeah. And sit down with him and have you know. As soon as we walked in, oh hello, Mr. Lundvall. How are you, sir? Please come sit down. And he ordered all this stuff that wasn't even on the menu, and it was just like incredible. That was yeah. my kind of my first experience with him. And of course, talk about being inspired. I went home and I started working on on my new record and uh, just, he was such an amazing man. Uh, so smart. His musical sensibilities were second to none. I mean, he's just a great guy. And, and I feel very lucky, very fortunate that I had the chance to meet him, let alone, you know, work with him. It was, sure. it was amazing. Yeah. It, it, uh, I had many meals uh, at Castellanos with Bruce um, and, and his support of, of jazz is over the years was truly unprecedented. And, you know, karma has a, 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 an interesting path. And what happened was with all his support over the years, I never knew how I could ever pay him back. Sure, we supported Blue Note as they were so worthy of the support. And uh, it, was, it was such an, a natural thing to do. And then this is a story you probably don't know. And then one day, um, as my dual life, and we'll talk about your dual life as well. Um, I was in working in the hospital as a radiologist. And uh, one of my admin folks that I worked with at the hospital came up to me and she wanted me to listen to her niece. Uh, and at that time I had my own record label at in Verve, in the Verve group. And um, she said, uh, her name was Elaine Smith. And she said, I'd like you to listen to my niece. She's a really great singer. And I took the demo and I, I quite frankly, put it in my car and, and, it was a couple months later, I, I was driving home and I wanted something to listen to. And I pulled the, the CD out of the glove box and put it in. And I was like, what the heck is this? And I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's Elaine's niece. So I, I the next day I, I see Elaine in the hospital. I say, can you, I need to talk to you about your niece. She goes, well, do you like her? And I said, she's one of the best singers I've ever heard. She said, oh, you're just saying that. And he said, well, would you sign her? And I said, well, I can't sign her because I just sold the record company to, to Verve. And I said, but you need to call my friend Bruce Lundvall because he will know exactly. He will get this immediately because he's such a music guy, even though this isn't really jazz. And of course, he signed her. And I had really just a, a minuscule, if any, part of it. Uh, and it was Nora Jones. I, I was wondering as you were telling that story, was that going to be Nora Jones? Yeah, yeah I mean... What what an amazing talent! That's an incredible story, actually. Wow. Yeah, it's it's and and you know, uh, my colleagues and and partners and and friends they they sort of said, "You idiot! You should have signed her anyway." I was like, "Well, I, I didn't have a label, but that's just the way it works in this business. You know, yeah. what goes around comes around." Bruce, such an incredible supporter of mine, and you know, for whatever tiny minuscule part I played in that, it couldn't have gone to a better person in the music business. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, there, I guess there's a lot of uh, people who are icons in, in the music industry that are, that are beloved, but I don't know of any that are more beloved and respected than Bruce. Absolutely. No, he, he, he had that magic that, uh, well, we miss him a lot. Yeah. Um, so before we get into the new album, it's a lot we need to talk about. One is, um, you know, you talked about poison and rock. You really came from more of that world in the earlier days. I mean, I remember you talk about going back memory lane. I remember meeting you at a NAM, not NARM, a NAM convention, National Association of oh, Music Merchandisers, where you were playing sax in a booth. <laughs> and I walked up to you and I said, oh, man, you're Richard Elliott. And you were like, well, yeah, I think so. And um, I said, I remember you from Kitty Hawk. And you were like, wow, you, you listen. Yeah, of course. I was like, they were kind of a, this very cool jazz fusion unit yeah. that, um, that, that was some of your earlier days, wasn't it, in recording? It was. And that was in Chicago, I think, where we met, right? I think so, Chicago, Nam McCormick. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I remember that. Um, yeah, Kitty Hawk was one of the first uh, recording 
groups that I, I uh, was lucky enough to be a part of. I graduated from high school in 1979, uh, 78 actually, uh, went to Cal State Northridge uh, and um, started getting opportunities to do studio work and, and kind of sub and fill in with different bands. And um, it just kind of worked out. It's amazing. I feel very, again, let me preface by saying I've been very, very lucky. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles. I was born in Scotland. I grew up in Los Angeles, which, you know, between LA and New York, I think you're talking about more incredible musicians per square inch than anywhere in the world. And so I just feel extremely lucky that I was in the right place at the right time and got the right breaks. Um, I mean, I worked hard, but uh, I think, again, I think timing uh, has a lot to do with it. But anyways, um, I was going to college and I was kind of playing in cover bands and doing things around town, going to jam sessions around LA, trying to get known. And um, I got a call from this uh, fellow who was, uh, who was in a group called Kitty Hawk and they played this instrument called the Chapman stick, which mm -hmm. was a 10 stringed touchboard. Uh, so it was like a, a stringed instrument, like a guitar or a bass. It had uh, like five bass strings and five lead strings. And it was an amazing, is an amazing instrument. And yeah. this band had two stick players in it. So it was very unusual. And, uh, yeah, I got a call and would I be interested in coming down and meeting the guys? I went down, met with them, and uh, we recorded two records for EMI America. And um, uh, it, it, that just kind of got things started for me, got the ball rolling. And that was in 19, that was in 79. And wow. I think we record, I was 19 years old. And I think we recorded our first record in 1980. Um, so yeah, that was the first thing. But you know, it's interesting. I took whatever I could get in terms of, you know, playing situations. If someone called me, it didn't matter to me if it was a jazz gig or if it was kind of a more of a fusion type thing, or if it was rock and roll, I just wanted to play. So, mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm glad uh, looking back on that because I mean, I have very eclectic tastes in terms of the music I listen to. I listen to all kinds of music uh, equally. So, I played any kind of music I was up for doing. I mean, I'd go play, you know, I'd go play, uh, you know, an Armenian wedding and, uh, <laughs> you know, or do, I mean, really pretty much anything and that I could get my hands on. And then uh, right around that time, I also, um, I met, uh, well, actually the way this is funny, how you talk about things, timing and, and, uh, and being lucky. Um, there was a fellow, a saxophone player, that was playing uh, a lot for two producers at Hitsville West in Los Angeles. And Hitsville West was the West Coast recording studio for Motown Records. Mm. And these two producers, uh, Steve Berry and Tony Peluso, were producing a lot of Motown's artists at the time. And um, their regular sax player wasn't available. And this is how it works. Someone said, well, I know a guy who maybe can sub for, for your regular guy, why don't you give him a call? And I got the call and I went and played. I think the first thing I did for them was uh, on a Smokey Robinson record, uh, just wow. a back solo on a, on a Smokey song. And um, we hit it off. We got along and they seemed to like what I, I did. And then from that point, they started calling me. And so this is kind of how it's been in terms of uh, the type of music I've played over the years has been pretty eclectic, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so the, um, so that was that the kind of connection with, I remember you, um, like the four tops and temptations and it, it was that all from that connection? Yeah, that was all from that connection. That was from, from Steve, Steve, uh, uh Barry and Tony Peluso. Yeah. And then it was shortly after the, and I was also going on the road a lot too. So I had done, you know, I played with on the road with a, a, a few different people. I, I, went and did a European tour with Ricky Lee Jones. And, um, uh, and how was it to work with Rick? How was it to work with Ricky Lee? She's brilliant. She's yeah. just a brilliant musician, a brilliant artist. Um, I was, uh, and it was thrills and spills. I mean, she was very demanding in terms of, the Oh way yeah. She wanted things done. Um, but that was good for me because I was young. I was, again, I was what, 21, 22 years old at that point. 
you know, I was still, I had a lot to learn. I still have a lot to learn, but I really had a lot to learn back then. And wow. uh, it, so I just took it as a, it was all just a big learning experience in terms of learning about my craft and how to do it as well as I could do it. But at the same time, also learning how to be a team player, how to be a support musician um, mm-hmm. in, in a, in, you know, in a backup role which is pretty much what I was doing most of the time. I, you know, I, I didn't really have a solo career at that point. And so, you know, playing with people like Ricky was great. And then uh, I, after that, I went on the road with Melissa Manchester. That was a completely different type of musical sensibility. Again, she was an amazing artist and she had things, she liked things a certain way. And it was another opportunity for me to learn another facet of uh of being a musician and 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 being in a support role i've had the opportunity to work with with both uh melissa she performed at at the jazz is clubs a couple times and uh a wonderful lady uh uh ricky lee jones my experience with her is actually uh a great story and that is um as you remember back in the day when you were on the cover of jazz is we we would do our own photo sessions we bring in wardrobe makeup and we we try to be very very professional and, and make the covers look more like lifestyle magazines than jazz magazine and um so we got to ricky uh, her photo session and um they started asking her to pose a certain way and she literally looked at the photographer she said let me make one thing clear i'm here i'm gonna do things you shoot the camera as much as you want. Don't ask me to do anything. If you catch what you like, that's great. But just don't ask me to do anything. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay. That really kind of sums it up. Yeah, yeah. She's uh, she's very particular. But you know yeah. what? That's her right as an artist. Yep. And absolutely. Um, and I've always, you know, you know, I've got plenty of stories about recording with with artists that were maybe a little more demanding or a little more difficult or being on the road with them. And at the end of the day, yes, it, you, you kind of, if you're out bearing the brunt of that as a backup musician, you know, you, you deal with it and you shake it off and you keep going. But when I look at it sort of back more holistically, I see it as um, artists who are uncompromising, mm-hmm. how they want to express themselves, how they want to be portrayed. And, that that is their right and the rest of us just have to if we're in that support role we just have to do our best to be there for them and and absolutely and and you know what's really interesting as to further your point is when you looked at the outcome of the photo session it was incredible yeah i mean her cover was astounding uh and she wanted to do it her way right and And, so consequently you got a very honest portrayal visual portrayal of her I would think. Absolutely. It was, it was the real Ricky Lee Jones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, that's great. So switching gears a little bit. Oh, by the way, before I, before I get off the topic, when you have a supporting role, uh, as a musician, you have a very unique and powerful sound. Does that sometimes get in the way? For example, on Kitty Hawk, going back to Kitty Hawk, you were, there was a presence there. Were you, I think, it, were you playing the Lyricon back then? It was, it was, it was, it was yeah. a pretty, pretty powerful sound. Um, does sometimes that get in the way when you're trying to support and, and not be a lead? That's a great question. Um, you try to be objective in that, in that regard, but you're also trying to kind of put your best foot forward. And if I, I guess I would have to say that um, I would do my best to listen um, to the people around me and particularly the person I'm backing up. But that being said, I'm sure there's plenty of times where I might've overstepped. Um, You know, I appreciate those kind words about a presence because the people that I grew up listening to and wanting to emulate the most were particularly saxophone players who had a, a, a real presence, uh, especially in terms of just, not just the notes they played, but how they played the notes. Uh, people like Dexter Gordon or Grover Washington just had, they had amazing presence. 
And so I always wanted to kind of emulate that. I never knew knew if I was pulling it off or not, but that was what I, I would strive for. Yeah, but occasionally, sure. I'm sure that I uh, overstepped or was overly aggressive or sometimes not aggressive enough. And, and I would have to rely on, you know, music director or the artist that I'm working with to let me know, you push a little harder or, you know, reel it in a little bit. The interesting mm-hmm. thing was after those people working with people like Melissa or, uh, or Ricky Lee, um, shortly after that, actually in 1982, I joined Tower of Power. And right. that took the concept of presence to a whole different level for me. Mm-hmm. You know, so, yeah. uh, and, and that, I think that's where uh, one of the most important things I learned in Tower of Power, since it was a horn player's horn band. I mean, you know, just to me, the consummate horn band, and it was a dream come true to work with them. And, and the thing I learned, the first thing I learned was when you step out to do a solo, when you've got this incredible wall of sound behind you and this amazing horn section, you've got to be heard. And I don't mean just volume wise, you've got to make a statement mm-hmm. every time you step out in front. Uh, otherwise, you just get gobbled up and you're not even noticed. So I would say that I probably learned about that idea of presence or making a statement, actually trying to say something every time you stepped out. I probably learned more of that with Tower of Power than any other group or artist that I worked with. And it it wasn't too far after that where, I mean, I I didn't even put two and two together. You were arguably the first saxophonist in the Yellow Jackets. That's right. You know, I, I never thought of it in those terms, but, you know, of course, you know, Bob Mincer today and, and Mark Russo and a couple other folks that have been in and out of Yellow Jackets, but on the, I think it was Mirage Atois, you were, you're right there on the Lyricon and it kind of made me think that, well, maybe one of the things that Richard does better than anyone else is when there's this kind of very sophisticated rock fusion thing, you knew, you know what to do when you get in there because it, the, you the the playing on those albums that we talked about in the Yellow Jackets is just its signature. Oh, thank you. Um, well, you know it's interesting because I think I played mostly Lyricon on the Mirage Trois record. I played saxophone on maybe two songs, uh, but you know Russell and Jimmy Russell Ferrante, Jimmy Hassel, yeah. um, and uh, and Ricky Lawson, which you know God rest his soul. You know, he, yeah, he was, he was amazing. He was, yeah. A, an amazing musician, amazing guy. Um, you know, they were going for something a little bit different. So the idea of using the Lyricon instead of a, you know, conventional saxophone in most, on most of the songs that Russell was just trying to find a different tonality or a different approach. So I just felt very, very lucky that where his head was going musically I seemed to coincide with what I was doing. Um, So it just worked out. And again, that was another incredible opportunity. And I I actually had met those guys when I was with Kitty Hawk. We had uh, the same manager at the time, Gary Borman. Oh, yeah, um, I remember Gary, sure. Yeah, and so that's how I met Russell and uh, and Jimmy and Ricky uh, and Robin Ford, who was with the Yellow Jackets at, at... Prior, he had left uh, by the time I I was uh, playing with the band. So yeah, yeah, but- yeah, that was just another amazing opportunity, luck and timing, and you know, I, I again, I feel very fortunate to have been able to do that. Now, did you do you work with Tommy Lapuma all uh, during that? Because I know Tommy produced the first two records for the Yellow Jackets. Yeah, yeah, Tommy uh, produced um, Mirage Trois, and so that was another dream come true, being able to work with someone like Tommy, I was, oh, oh my yes. God, I was nervous. I just remember <laughs> it took, took me a few days to, to calm down a little bit because I just was, you know, this guy kind of like Bruce Lundvall, this amazing, this musical icon who uh, was, you know, was a saxophone player also, which maybe yeah. some people might not know. Yeah. Um, but so I was nervous as hell. I just, I just, <laughs> it took me a minute to, to kind of get grounded. Um, but he was an amazing guy uh, to, to work with. And I just did my best to try and learn as much as I could, you know, working with him. Yeah. He, he, uh, um, 
Tommy and I were, were good friends and uh, I miss him dearly. He's uh, like Bruce. I agree with you. He's, he's one of the, one of the few, you know, when you ask anyone about Tommy, they all just smile and say wonderful things and yeah. same thing, Bruce, uh, you know, and, and yet he loved music so much uh, that I remember when he was producing Paul McCartney's album, uh, he would call me and uh, tell me stories about what was going on in the studio. And you could tell he was, he was like a kid in the candy store. He's like, you know, so I was, you know, thinking that we should do this certain thing. And I asked Paul and I wasn't sure whether I should broach the subject. And Paul turned to me and said, Tommy, you're the producer. You tell me what you want me to do. He goes, that's Paul McCartney telling me that. <laughs> and yeah. he was, he just loved what he did. And you could tell because it showed in the, in the end result. Absolutely. And I've, I've often thought to myself, um, people like Tommy who have this amazing body of work over such a long time span, if you can you know, go to work every day and have that same level of curiosity and enthusiasm for what you're doing throughout your entire life, I mean, that's an, you've been given an, an incredible gift. So, yeah. and that was Tommy. I mean, definitely the level of enthusiasm and, and his curiosity to try and find different things and, and just that amazing experience. And by the way, like Bruce Lundvall, lunch and dinner were main events. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I've, I've done many a dinner with, with Tommy. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, you know, so I had this, this label in the Verve group with, with Lee Rittenauer and Mark Wexler. And, um, and we had sold the label to Verve. They bought us out when Universal bought Polygram. And Tommy became the chairman of Verve. And I was at a restaurant, one of my favorite restaurants. I can't remember the name of it uh, in New York. This is, you know, 25 years ago. Uh, gosh, what was the name of that? Anyway, um, I think the chef was Charles something. Uh, can't, I, I'll, I'll remember it later, I'm sure. And uh, I'm walking into the restaurant. And of course, it's a great restaurant. A lot of people love this place. And Tommy's walking out. And so, you know, we hug each other. And, you know, for those of you who don't know Tommy, he, he kind of reminds you a little bit of this just lovable Danny DeVito type guy. And, and, you know, he just, he says, Michael, can you come to my office on Monday? And I was like, sure, Tommy, what's up? He goes, well, you know, I want to start working with you guys again. Now we had sold the label to Verve and I said, well, Tommy, did we just sell the label? He goes, yeah, yeah, but I, I want to work with you guys. It was a lot of fun. And that was the, the kind of guy he was. He just loved what he did, loved being around people he loved working with. The stories that he would tell at dinner were amazing. Yeah, And uh, I, I, like I said, I just a, a wonderful guy. I miss a lot. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Tommy LaPuma. Yeah. And I, and I felt, you know, I was with Verve for a, for a period of time also. And um, I never worked directly with, with Tommy. I know Tommy was instrumental in getting me signed to the label. Um, and uh, I worked mostly with, uh, with Ron Goldstein, but sure. um, it was, and, and Mark Wexler later, you know, when I was with heads up um, Mark was, uh, was, or Concord slash heads up, uh, yep. Mark, Mark was just amazing to work with. Also another great guy, great music guy. Yeah. Mark, Mark, Mark's, Mark's an old friend and colleague. And, uh, uh, we stay into act, act. Mark actually moved to Boca Raton. He doesn't live in New York anymore. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Everyone's moving to down here. They're getting away from, I guess the city. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so totally switching gears. You still flying? I am. I'm still flying. Um, uh, not a whole lot these days. Uh, I flew a lot last year, um, but uh, this year uh, kind of sticking closer to home for obvious reasons. Um, I'm actually building an airplane in my garage. So <laughs> that's fun. It's not yeah. actually flying yet, but hopefully in a year or so um, I'll be ready to, to take it flying. If you invite me for the first trip, um, I, I, I want to decline right now. Yeah, that seems to be happening a lot. I've had several people decline the first flight. Yeah, I think I have to do that alone, anyways. But yeah, actually, I think you have to fly it for, I think, forty hours before so, you take passengers. Can you, get, can you give me some details about what you're building? Yeah, 
it's uh it's a bush plane so it's kind of those high wing planes real boxy looking you've probably seen pictures of them like up in alaska they're very common because they can fly in and out of very uh, small areas they it can take off and land in 150 feet. It doesn't go very fast, um, but uh, yeah, it's kind of like a like a jeep with wings. And Is it like a Red Baron kind of thing? Or, I mean, can you have passengers? Uh, it's a two seat airplane. Okay. Uh, not so much Red Baron. That's like more like a biplane, like with you know two wings. This has just got one wing on the top, and it's just real boxy. If again, if you you look at some of these planes that take you, like if you go fishing up in the back country in, in Alaska, that's that's what they look like. So, yeah, that's what I'm wow. doing. It well, doesn't, I, and it doesn't go fast, but uh, but it's fun to fly. Wow. So so you um, you lived in Tampa, which isn't the mecca of of jazz artists, um, and then now you live in somewhere north of San Diego. Right. That's and great. and that's that's also kind of for for entertainment purposes a little bit remote. Tell us about living in it's Escondido. Actually, um, I I moved from Escondido. I'm still north of San in the San Diego area. We live in a place called Rancho Santa Fe now. Okay, um, which is a little closer to the ocean, uh, just about the same distance north of San Diego, and. Uh, yeah, it's very quiet around here. Um, we've got uh, we've got a barn and we've got horses. And um, I actually, uh, when we moved in here, I put my recording studio in the barn, as a matter of fact, which is awesome. Um, I don't know if the horses like it very much, but <laughs> I, I love the setting. It's, it's really cool. Um, yeah, so we're I, just here and, and um, you know, uh, we have five kids. Um, uh, three of them are out of the house now, uh, and uh, one's uh, uh, two are in college. One, our youngest is uh, uh, in tenth grade, so we still got still got a young one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is I, I love it here, and if you know, it's not a real bad. It's not a terrible commute. If I have to go to L.A., you know, it's it's two hours away, and mm -hmm. to me, it's funny because every time we we have like, if we're doing like a big collaboration tour, like summer horns or something, mm -hmm. you know, we always uh, rehearse up in LA and more times than not, we will like rehearse for two weeks and I up there and more times than not, I'll end up driving home each night. Cause I just like being home. I don't mind. I don't mind it. It's not a bad commute at all. Yeah. Well, I, I so now I kind of, it makes sense. The, on, on the homepage uh, listeners, should and and viewers should know that there's it looks like maybe it's a picture of your stable your horse stable that's right is that, is, and and that's where your recording studio is so if you want yeah. a little bit of a bird's eye view of, of where richard records that's it that that's correct yeah we did the photo shoot at at the barn and um you know it's it's uh it 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 was cool because that's kind of where I was working on the record and, and where the Genesis was. And it happens to be my favorite part of the house uh, is the barn. Um, and it's beautiful. so it's, it, yeah. So uh, Lori Stoll, who did the photography, I threw the idea I out know Lori. to her. Yeah. And she said, yeah, let's do it. And um, it, it plays into the title of the record very well. Also, frankly, the, the, the visual aspect. So the title of the record uh, your brand new record uh, with a um, tell us about it and how you came up with that title. And you assembled a bunch of real world-class artists. So I know are friends of yours uh, over the years and you really, uh, you know, this one is, this one's a, kind of a, like a super group in some ways. Well, again, feeling very fortunate uh, to be able to pick up the phone and call people like Jeff Lorber and ask, Hey, want to play on my record or do you want to write a tune? Um, and have them go, yeah, you know, without hesitation uh, is is a great thing. Um, people like Rick Braun being willing to take the time to produce and and also add just he adds so many things on so many levels, not just production, but as a as a player, as a as a writer. 
Um, the record's called Authentic Life. Um, you know, I think like most of us uh, or most artists who have, have written or done any kind of work during this last year, um, it, you're obviously affected in many ways uh, by what's been going on. And um, if you are as sincere an artist or an authentic person, and, and when I say authentic, I mean just being true to yourself, um, being honest uh, with your, in, in the case, in my case, being honest with my art, but also honest with myself as a person, as a human being, the people I interact with. Um, it's about sincerity and honesty. And what we tried to do with this record musically was do as sincere uh, a performance as possible. And that meant covering the, as much of the emotional gamut as, as I could, you know, uh, you know, even taking uh, a negative event like dealing with this pandemic and trying to glean positivity out of it in some form. And, mm -hmm. uh, and also to um, convey other emotions, you know, sorrow and, and sadness um, and also resilience and, you know, inspiration. And that's kind of without getting too, I know I'm getting a little touchy feely here, but that's kind of what, what the record's about. Absolutely. No, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's great. You know, I always, you know, the fact that I've, you know, followed your career from the very beginning, there was a record label. I actually, I think I remember before Enigma was, there was this little label that we used to deal with called ITI. Yes. And, and that was, I think that was, was that your first solo record on ITI? Yeah, that was uh, my first record called Initial Approach, which I yeah, think yeah. some people think it's my second, but because it was re-released after I did my first record uh, for Enigma. Um, but yeah, ITI Allegiance uh, released uh, take uh, my, my initial approach. And I think we sold, f I think, five copies. Yeah, I, I bought one of them. So really four. I think I got and mine. My, and then my and then four of my family members. So there's <laughs> you and four of my family members. Yeah. But but, but you know, interesting about that. Um, sorry to interrupt, no, to interrupt you. Um, that record actually, again, talking about timing and and serendipity. Um, I was I did have a band around that time, my own band, and just for fun, and we used to perform at this club called at my place. Oh, I love that place. Monica. Yeah. And, um, we just did it for fun. And, um, I did a recording session around that time, uh, for a keyboard player, uh, an Icelandic keyboard player named Jakob Magnuson. And, um, yeah. he, um, the record was being produced by Henry Louie and Henry, uh, was a pretty prolific producer who produced, among other things, um, Joni Mitchell's Court and Spark album. And wow. um, he came to one of our shows uh, at, at my place. And then uh, after the show, he said to me, you know, I, um, I've got uh, some studio time at A&M Records on the weekends when they're not doing anything. And, you know, I can just bring people in and we can, you know, goof around and write and record maybe you and your band would like to come and do that. So I said, yeah, absolutely. Sounded like fun. And, and we went in the studio and we did that every weekend for like maybe three months. And we ended up with a complete record and that was my first record. And it was just the kind of thing where we finished the record and we said, okay, what do we do with this? And a friend of mine who actually was one of the owners of at my place said, I know this guy who's with this label ITI. And that's how it, that's how the first record got released. Wow. Was that friend David Gimbel? I, uh, no, Matt Kramer was, uh, I, think, I think David Gimbel was one of the owners of at my place, which is a very, very cool little club. Uh, not around anymore, but yeah, yeah. Th those were very interesting. And, and Jakob Magnuson, I, I actually remember that album that he, he, it was on a major label. Um, Warner brothers, Warner brothers. Yeah. And, and I remember Tommy the, uh, Tommy, Tommy, one of the guys who came down uh, to hear us play, we did a showcase and Tommy LaPuma was one of the guys who came down. I think he was 
I think he was the one who signed him. And I think it was yeah. to Warner Brothers. Yeah. Yeah. It's I, I remember that album. The uh so uh, let's switch gears again. You're you're a you're a techie. I remember like back in the in the dot-com era, you were you were doing all kinds of things in the tech world. Still doing that? Uh, I would say I'm probably for the most part retired from that now. Uh, okay. That being said, who knows? You, you, you and Mark Cuban? What's that? You and Mark Cuban both, oh, right? Oh, if it, I wish. <laughs> um, no, I mean, uh, you know, that's something I just kind of fell into, like, like most things in my life. Um, actually, in the 80s, I got interested when, when MIDI came out. Mm -hmm. uh, musical instrument digital interface, which was a way for different uh, musical electronic musical instruments to talk to each other. I found it incredibly fascinating. And so I wanted to learn about music software because it was that was kind of the 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 era where all that stuff was was starting to come out. So I I started learning computer programming. Uh, because I wanted to uh, write music software. And uh, it was just, I went out and just got books and, and goofed around. I, I bought my first computer, which was, a, um, I think it was a Commodore 64 computer that I bought at Toys R Us, <laughs> literally. And, uh, and I learned to program basic, um, which was the, the, a, a rudimentary computer language. And then eventually moved on to, to learning to program in C uh, and then C++. And um, as it turned out, I really never wrote much in the way of music software. I kind of got pushed into another direction. Um, I kind of walked away from it. And then in the early 90s, I started getting involved in it again. And I was uh, what kind of I got introduced to the Internet, but this was Actually, I have to back up for a second. This was sort of mid-80s. Um, I was with Tower of Power, and we were backing up Huey Lewis and the News, our horn section. And those guys were using email. And that was pretty new at the time. And I got really interested in that. And then um, you know, kind of fast forward to the early 90s, when the Internet uh, was still pretty much in its infancy, I got interested in that myself and a, a tour manager that I was working with. And we, we started a company um, that was an internet-based company. And this was sort of, I want to say maybe 94. And around 95 is when the internet started to kind of explode. So we were a little bit ahead of it, but only doing it, not because we thought it was going to be a, a great business venture. We just found it really interesting. So, mm -hmm. and the World Wide web was nothing at the time. I mean, you you could find like websites that had like a banner, you know, just a graphic or something. Um, mm -hmm. So it was just something we kind of fell into. And um, when a lot of our friends in the music industry, particularly record companies, realized they had to sort of get on board this internet thing. And this is the long, this is before the digital revolution. This was just, mm -hmm. you know, websites. Um, since we had friends in the music industry, that's who we ended up, you know, talking to. And that's who came to us. A, a lot of people in the music industry came to us about, you know, doing these website things or providing internet connectivity. And so we started a company, it was called Pacific Net. And, um, and we did that for about five years and, uh, wow. and subsequently sold that company and then started another company, which was also internet based, but it was more, uh, it, along the lines of financial services, so, uh, software, financial services, software, internet-based. And um, I did that for 15 years uh, until 2017, and then we sold that company. But um, for me, it was always, I loved doing things, technical stuff, because it was cool to do it. Luckily, there were people that I was partnered with who you know, had more business sense because I never really had much business sense. I just like building things and mm -hmm. watching them work. Um, and so, and I find, you know, computer programming technology is, is very similar to, to music. It's, there's a mathematical precision to it. Um, it's creative because 
you know, if you're writing a program, there's several ways to get from point A to point B. And, you know, the, the question is, how can you do it in the most elegant way possible? So I find a lot of parallels between that side of my life and, and being a musician. And during all of this, I was still playing music. I still had a full-time music career. My, the guys in my band used to make fun of me because I would be on my laptop up until five minutes before going on stage. And I'd close the laptop and run up on stage, play a show. Or if it was a collaboration tour, like guitars and saxes or something, I would, I, I'd work on my computer, run up, play two songs, come back to the dressing room, work on my computer, go back up. And I, you know, it's just, yeah, no, I, I, well, that's why in the, in the, in the very beginning, I was saying, you know, this kind of dual life, because, you know, there was kind of the word on the street back in the nineties was, you know, Richard Elliott's in the tech world. I mean, he, we don't know whether we're going to hear from him again, because he's, he's a, he's an internet icon. And, um, you know, I said, oh, I think musically that's his passion. I can't see that going away, but, and I could completely relate to that because for me, I mean, I remember uh, designing issues of jazz is in the very earliest days of the magazine in the OBGYN call room when I was on call and people would like, I go deliver a baby and then I come back in the call room and do some design work. And then another baby was get, getting ready to be delivered. I go out and deliver the baby and I come back into the call room. Yeah. So I, I could totally relate to that. Yeah. Um, I would think you could. Yeah. Because you've lived that dual life. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, and, uh, and it, it, it makes life exciting. So, it, you know, you have a lot of energy. And one of the things that I wanted to say about your energy is that, you know, I remember watching you at one of your shows really early on, earliest part of your career. And one of the things that struck me was this, this undeniable energy. In fact, you know, I remember you being one of the first contemporary jazz saxophonists to go out into the audience and just go crazy, just blow and just, you know, really just give it your all to the point where when you got back on stage, you were like, wow, that was a workout. Um, did, did you, did you, when you did that, I mean, what was it like? Because it, it clearly what it did for me and what I saw happening to audiences back then is you ignited an audience that would connect to you more because of the energy that you, you know, emanated more than some of the other contemporary jazz that was out at the time. Mm. Well, thank you for that. Um, gosh, I, you know, I'm going to kind of harken back to the title of this, this record, Authentic Life. It was, to me, um, I've always tried to be as sincere a musician as possible in terms of how I convey what I'm doing to an audience. And it's, it's, I've probably taken a little bit of heat for that from people saying, well, yeah, he jumps around on stage and uh, to evoke a reaction. And I, I don't know, I have to be perfectly honest with you. I play or I play how I feel. Um, I try to be as sincere and honest as I can with my performance. And that includes any potential, you know, energy or affectations that happen up on stage. It's just, it's all, it's, it's me. Um, I will say at 61, it, I have to pace myself a little more. <laughs> <laughs> but um, not too much. We still get up there and jump around and have fun. Uh, it's hard not to. I, I love what I do. I love playing my instrument. I love performing. I probably, if I had to give up playing live or recording, if I had to pick one thing that I could only that I could only do, it would. I try to. It would be live performance at least as long mm -hmm. as I'm capable of doing it, because I love establishing that relationship that connection with an audience mm -hmm. um so it's yeah and i and it, again i'm going to go back to tower of power because that had a lot to do with who i who i became as an artist as a solo artist i attribute probably more to tower of power than any other group or artist that i ever worked with wow well you know one of the things i wanted to say in closing is that the um you, I had a deja vu moment with you, and and I've always been curious about why what deja vu is actually all about. You may remember this. Um, I was checking into a hotel 
for the Seabreeze Jazz Festival. This was maybe like five years ago. And I was at the counter and then I turned to my right and there you were checking in. And then didn't think much of it. We said, hello. I said, I hope to see you out there. And we said our goodbyes. And then the next year, I check into the same hotel at that counter and I look over to my right and you're checking in at the same time. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. <laughs> I mean, I, I was like, first I, I thought even, about it. I think I might've even said something like, we got to stop meeting like this or something. Yeah. And, and, you know, cause deja vu to me is like, it's a phenomenon that, I mean, I'm sure there are neuroscientists that understand it, but I really thought for a moment that didn't happen last year. I just thought it happened last year. Because it was it was the same thing again. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, wow, well, Richard, I, I, it's interesting yeah. though about how we, uh, how it is in many ways with in, in this business. I mean, there's those of us who are lucky enough to have had some longevity in it. We establish these relationships, and whether it's you know seeing somebody you know frequently or once a year or I mean, you and I have have uh, have had a friendship for decades, which yeah. is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful um, result of of this business that we're in that we get to establish relationships like this. And with you, it's been yeah. We talked about Narm and and uh, playing at your club and and just all these great wonderful experiences that again I just. I, I don't take any of them for granted. Oh, me neither. And I, I thank you for, for everything you do. It's been, a, it's been a great journey. I hope we can do it for another 30 years. Me too. Me All too. right. Well, again, thank you for your time, and uh, we will meet again. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. All right. All right. Take care. You too.